as we move into the preaching of your word, I pray that you would help me to be clear, concise. I pray uh, that there would be a movement of your spirit giving us the ability to hear, to understand. I thank you, Father, for the example we can lay out this morning. But more importantly, Lord, I pray that your word would be understood. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1985, a convention was held in Dallas, Texas. It was attended by 45,000 people, and each one of those individuals was a representative of a church. It was a very tense moment. There was an expectation that on that or during that conference or convention, a decision would be made to alter the course of their denomination. That they would vote to go the direction that many other mainline denominations had decided to go to a a direction that was more modern, in some words, far more critical of Christianity, of Scripture. And the expectation is that was what was going to happen until a 75-year-old pastor got up and preached one of the greatest messages ever heard at one of these conventions. And it's believed that that sermon helped save that particular denomination from making a terrible mistake. Now I mention that because this morning we come to our last in this series I've done on men and women that God has used. And I I, I don't want to talk about that day's speaker. I want to talk to you about the person that he talked about. You see, on that day, that 75-year-old pastor in front of those 45,000 delegates in that incredibly tense moment picked a story picked the life of a single woman who had given her life to missions and had been dead for nearly 80 years that young woman's name was charlotte moon or today better known as lottie moon you see the testimony of a four foot two woman from virginia played a part in the Southern Baptist Convention avoiding liberalism for the next 30 years. The context of our passage this morning here in Romans 12 is, a, is based on an argument that has been made over the courses of chapters 9, 10, and 11. And the basic idea is this. Throughout history, God has shown mercy. And he has saved whoever he wanted. And that today, God's plan is through the preaching and teaching and spreading of the gospel, he is saving both Jewish people and non-Jewish people. And so that means that if you're a Christian, or the Christians who are reading this, and if you're a Christian this morning, it means that God has shown you mercy by saving you through faith in Christ. But the argument that these three verses make is based entirely on that premise. By the mercies of God. That we are to respond to this mercy. And so our text gives us this response. And I have three points for you this morning. How should we respond to God's mercy in our lives? How should we respond to God's mercy in our lives? Number one. Because God has shown me mercy. I am to present myself. Because God has shown me mercy, I am to present myself. Now, I have, over the course of the last week, tried to think uh, of a 
parallel in our modern culture of the idea that is being put forth here, and unfortunately, because I'm not smart enough, I didn't think of one. But there is one in Psalm 40. Psalm 40 was a psalm that was used in the liturgy for the priesthood in, uh, in the Old Testament. So if you were going to become a priest, this was kind of recited over the course of you dedicating yourself to service to God. The psalm opens with being reminded that the person who is dedicating themselves, God has shown you mercy. Then over the course of the psalm, the encouragement is to say, Lord, you have given me a body. And what the psalm, or what the, the person would mean, what the psalm means is saying something along the lines of, Lord, you've given me a brain that can work math problems. Maybe that doesn't apply to some of you. Or you say, Lord, you've given me arms and legs that are athletic. Or, Lord, you've given me woodworking talents. But that's the idea, is, is that first the priest would say, Lord, you've given me this body. Whatever this body can do, these talents that I have, I'm presenting them to you. And then he would move on and he would make a commitment with his emotions or his affections. Saying, Lord, I am perhaps easily compassionate. You would say, Lord, uh, I have a real good sense of justice. Lord, you've given me a talent for hospitality. And so what he would do is he would then say, you know what? I'm going to take all my affections and all of my emotions, and now I'm submitting them under your will. I'm, I'm going to submit. And whatever you want me to do with this, I'll do it. And then lastly, the speaker would then admit that in all of his dedication, he needs something from God. And what he needs is God's wisdom. And so he would make a vow like, Lord, uh, I, I need your word. So I vow today to make it a prescription of my life, the, the pill that I'm going to take every morning. That's the idea here of presenting yourself. This is what a, a priest would go through and make this dedication before God. Now, when it comes to presenting yourself as a living sacrifice, it's quite a twist of a phrase because by their nature, sacrifices typically you don't get to live. But the idea here is not of a blood sacrifice because blood is for cleansing. Blood is for sin. What we're doing is they're responding to the fact that blood has already been spilt. That's where the mercy of God has been found. So instead, the idea here of a living sacrifice is far closer to the Levitical idea of a grain offering. Not to say this before lunch, but what they would do is they would take the grain and they would mix it a little bit of olive oil, put some salt on it. Then they would take a handful of it and they would put it on the altar and set it on fire. And it would create this wonderful smell. Typically in your Bible, if you read a phrase, a sweet smelling aroma to God, that's the picture that the author has in mind. And it was something you did to show dedication to God. But then lastly, note at the end of verse 1, it says, doing this, making this presentation, being this kind of sweet-smelling sacrifice, is considered the most rational, and some of you might have the, the translation worshipful. Both ideas are there. It is the most rational, most worshipful thing you could do in response to God's mercy. So the most rational, most worshipful thing to do is God has shown you mercy to respond and say, Lord, my body, my affections are yours. I'm going to be, make my life a, 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 a sweet-smelling aroma to you, and I am going to make your word the prescription of my life. 
More practically, what you're essentially saying here is you're saying, every part of my life is now becoming an altar. So my car, my bed, my office chair, the pew you're sitting in, all of it becomes an altar. That's what it means to present yourself. Now Lottie Moon, she was born into significant wealth and religion. Her parents were plantation owners. They were devout Baptists. But she would describe herself as uh, indifferent to the things of God, indifferent to Christianity, indifferent to religion. Mostly because she had everything life could offer. She was one of the first women in our country to ever earn a master's degree. She was fluent in four, five, six different languages. She was the classic short girl with a tough personality. In 1858, though, she was invited to attend a service where she heard John Brodus speak. And at that time, her eyes were open to understand the gospel. Now, that didn't immediately move her to present herself. The first thing she did was went back home to help her mom with the, uh, with the plantation. Her dad had died. The Civil War was going on. But after that, she became a teacher. She didn't like how things were being done in the school system where she was, so her and a friend, they started their own school, mostly trying to reach the poorest families in the area she was in. But then 1872 came along, and with it a big surprise, her little sister decided and announced to the family that she was heading to China. And that stirred something in Lottie. She would later ask the question, why not do something to prove that we are earnest followers of Jesus, the one who was rich yet made himself poor for our sake? And for Lottie Moon, it was time to present herself as a living sacrifice. So in 1873, a year later, she followed her sister to China, considering it the most rational and most worshipful thing she had ever done. Leads me to point number two. Because God has shown me mercy, I am to reject conformity. Because God has shown me mercy, I am to reject conformity. Of course, the Christian life is made up of things we do and things we don't do. And here, the, the Bible is focusing on something we shouldn't do. We are called here to not be trans, or conformed, but instead be transformed. Now, I thought of this week that one of the things we need to be clear about is what does it mean to not be conformed to this world? Because we, there are a lot of ideas about what that actually means. Does it mean that when we, uh, we don't dress like them? Does it mean we don't listen to their music? Does it mean we do this? Does it mean we don't do that? Well, actually, what the Bible is referring to is a tension in Scripture that has been there or, 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 or exists all through Scripture. You see, the people of God have always lived in this dual existence. On one hand, the Bible says you're to separate from the world. Some groups take that to the utmost extreme, and today they only ride in horse and buggy, and they don't have electricity, and they only wear certain fabrics in their clothes. But at the same time, the Bible says you're supposed to be participating in the world. You're supposed to go to work. You're supposed to love your neighbor. You're supposed to be a good citizen. On one hand, the Bible says you're supposed to be conf confrontational with the world. Tell it it's doing wrong. At the same time, the Bible says we're supposed to adapt to living in the world. That tension kind of reaches a point in the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians where Paul says to him, okay, if you go to the meat market, now their meat market was a little bit different than ours. We just go to Gary's and say, hey, I'd like a slice of meat, and they give you a slice of meat, and you go home. There's no concern in your mind that anybody ever put it on, a, on an altar and bowed down to it at any point. But this happened in Corinth. 
All right, and so the, what the apostle says, hey, if you go to the meat market, buy your meat, don't ask any questions about what it was used for, take it home, give thanks, and eat it. That's living in the world. He said, but if you're at somebody's house, and you sit down to eat, and they put a nice juicy steak in front of you, and they say, you know what, I offered this to this particular false god, gave him thanks for it, you are to take that plate and shove it away from you. Refuse to eat it. See, conformity isn't just not being like the world. Conformity can be being an extreme opposite. Let me maybe put it this way. A a silent, celibate monk. Think how many times I practiced saying that. A silent, celibate monk in Japan is conforming to the world. Just as much as a progressive, liberal Christian is. It is conformity to completely reject the world. It is conformity to completely embrace the world. We are to live within this tension to reject conformity. You see, it's not just... The question here isn't whether or not we are going to conform. The question for us as Christians is which way are we tempted to conform? And we must reject all forms of conformity, no matter the type. Now, the battle happens, as we see in the text, that all of this conformity, this battle to conform, is going to happen in the mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That, again, is also in the context here, connected to the mercy of God. So, in other words, the gospel is the thing to keep in your mind. It's the thing to renew your mind. What do you mean, Pastor? Well, think about this. You look through the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You read about a Jesus who came into the world. We call that the incarnation. We celebrate it every Christmas. But we also find his separation from the world, the crucifixion of Christ. We find in the Gospels both the humble servant that is Jesus, and we also see after his resurrection the glorified King Jesus. We read read in the Gospel that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, yet we're told that we also must take up our cross and follow him. We live within the tension. That's what it means to not conform, not to let go of the tension. Now, Lottie Moon, not long after she arrived in China, began to complain or became very frustrated with how the mission work was being done in China. Now, oddly enough, I thought this was really interesting. She began to voice her frustrations. At the same time, frustrations were being uh, voiced by another Chinese missionary by the name of Hudson Taylor. They were both in China at the same time. No real knowledge of whether or not they ever met. But the frustration was this. Primarily, missions work in China was being done with the idea of being separate from the world. So for Hudson Taylor, his frustration was that British missionaries were showing up in China, and they were refusing to eat Chinese food. They were refusing to live in Chinese homes. They were refusing to live in Chinese neighborhoods. And they were refusing to wear Chinese clothes. For Lottie Moon, what that meant was that that female missionaries were coming and all they were allowed to do was teach or to do some sort of caretaking, which meant she had very few opportunities to evangelize. And she became more frustrated as it became painfully obvious that the fastest way to get the gospel to Chinese women was through female missionaries. So she wrote letter after letter to her mission board asking them to unleash women so they could evangelize the Chinese. She wanted to be in the world. But around the same time, 
a personal issue arose for her. You see, she had met a, she had met a guy, had feelings for him. His name was Crawford Toy. They'd met earlier when they were both teaching in the States. Their romance grew as Toy helped her learn Hebrew to further her Bible study. By all accounts, he was a brilliant young man, asked to come and teach at a seminary in Kentucky. So in 1881, Lottie Moon wrote to her mission board saying, I'm coming home, I'm going to get married. But then she arrived in the States and realized that Toy had become somebody who was a supporter of evolution and began espousing ideas that were critical of Scripture and Christianity. So Lottie Moon broke the engagement. She went back to China. He denounced his faith altogether. You see, Lottie Moon was not going to be of this world. Number three, because God has shown me mercy, I am to prove God's will. Because God has shown me mercy, I am to prove God's wor- uh, will. These last, at the end of verse 2 and, and verse 3, the phrases go together, meaning if, if you're going to prove God's will, if you're going to know what God's will is, one must have a renewed mind. But that doesn't really answer the question, what does it mean to know or to prove God's will? Now, the first thing we have to do is be clear about the fact that the Bible says that God uh, talks two ways about God's will. All right, we'll say the first way is we call it the God's sovereign will. The biblical idea there is that God has design. So, for example, if God decides in his sovereign will that America is only going to exist for 300 years, guess how long America is going to exist? 300 years. Or, to make it a little bit more personal, car accidents, liver cancer, hurricanes, baseball scores, beach weddings, all-you-can-eat buffets, they all happen, they all exist because God's sovereign will. And if they don't exist or they don't happen, that too is God's sovereign will. And the Bible says God gets to do that because he's God. And every time he does do it, his sovereign will is perfect, it's just, and it's good. And one thing that we need to make sure we know is that the Bible never, ever calls the Christian to prove that. It is. We state it as fact. Whatever God allows to happen It's his will, and God is always perfect, just, and good. But there is a second way the Bible talks about God's will, and we call it maybe God's commanded will. That's the idea actually here in the text, that God has things that he's commanded us to do. It's his will that we do them. And so the idea here is that you renew your mind so that you can ferret out what God wants you to do. Now that kind of feels like God leaves you to being like, okay, i got stuff for you to do. Let's see if you figure it out. That's actually not the idea. In fact, we get a number of helps. For example, look at verse 3. He gives us his word. We get commandments, direct commandments like verse 3. What does it say? Make sure you're not thinking too highly of yourself. The Bible is saying to you, think too highly of yourself. Guess what? You're not going to know what God wants you to do. You're not going to know God's will. But what the Bible tells us in other places, for example, the Spirit plays a part in this, helping you to understand, exhorting you, encouraging you towards God's will. Maybe you open your bulletin, you see somebody needs help moving. Spirit reminds you of that verse on hospitality in Romans 14, and you go, you know what? It's God's will, I probably should go help. Don't worry, I don't need to move. But the point is, is that you get the Word, you get the Spirit, but also the Bible tells you something else. 
is in Ephesians 4, you're told that God has given you pastors and teachers and evangelists, spiritual leaders, elders for your spiritual care. People walking around with white hair who have significant wisdom. And so all in all, you say, if I read my, if you read the word, I listen to the spirit, I take part in my church family, I'm actually left with very little to figure out on my own. So the next time you say, you know what, I really wish I knew what God wanted me to do, take your scriptures, listen to the spirit, go to an elder, put the gospel in your head. And the Bible is saying, this is how you know the perfect will of God. Now, having been set free from the limitations of her mission board and now free from her engagement, Lottie Moon went back to China, and this time she went deeper into the interior. Looking for ways to engage and evangelize, she turned to the scripture. She was reminded of God's command to Christians to be hospitable, and so she hit upon an idea, a very simple one, tea cakes. She made a lot of tea cakes, and it opened the door for conversations. And it opened the door for her to share the gospel with hundreds of Chinese people, many of them becoming Christians. 1885, she wrote to her mission board saying there was an overwhelming need for her to get more missionaries to where she was. She was honest with them about the fact that she needed more money. So the board wrote back, we don't have people or money. So Lottie Moon, not to be deterred, began to write to churches. And she asked them to form lady missionary circles, to raise awareness, to support missionaries. She began to champion an idea that every Christmas a collection should be taken up to help fund missions. And in 1888, the first Christmas collection, the first Lottie Moon Christmas collection was taken up, collected $75,000, and in today's money that would allow three missionaries to head back to China. But in 1892, Lottie Moon realized she was exhausted. But what do you do? What do you do when there's nobody to fill your shoes? She was reminded as she read the scriptures of God's command for people to rest in faith. You see, in her time, it was the idea that missionaries went to the field, stayed, and died. But for many, like her, one of the struggles was to think that if I ever left, God couldn't work in my absence. But Lottie Moon was convicted of the fact that she thought that that God was limited to her being there, and so realized she needed to take a furlough, came back to the States, and began to encourage both missionaries and churches to take up God's command to rest. She believed it would extend the lives and sharpen the work of missionaries. But when she returned, she began to face one difficulty after another. Tremendous civil unrest in China. For the next 20 years that she was there, there was one form of outbreak of war over another all of it ending with today's communist China. Because of all the war, famine, and plague broke out. The mission board ran out of money. They began cutting support to the missionaries. So Lottie Moon took everything she had, all her money, all her food, all her clothing, and she began to disperse it to everybody in need until one day she was found in poor health, weighing only 50 pounds. The decision was made to send her back to the U.S. for recovery, but she died, not even making it out of Japan. Lottie Moon changed the way that missions is done. She changed the way how many local churches in America thought about missions. And her influence crossed denominational borders. The Episcopalians have a Lottie Moon Day on their religious calendar. She's become a hero to Lutherans and Presbyterians, but she was a Baptist. And her biggest influence is there. 
Baptist missions banquets often have Lottie Moon Christmas tea cakes. And the Southern Baptist Convention today still takes up the Lottie Moon Christmas missions offering, and over the last hundred years, it has raised billions of dollars for missions. And in 1985, at a convention in Dallas, her story inspired a whole denomination to keep following Jesus. So Christian, because God has shown you mercy by saving you through faith in Christ, do the most rational and worshipful thing you can do. Present yourself. Your talents, your background, your personality, your everything for God's service. Reject every form, everything that wants to tug you to conform in one way or another in this world. Instead, keep the gospel in mind. And with the gospel in mind, scripture in hand, your church at your side, the spirit in your heart. Obey God's will every moment and follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father. We thank you for the life testimony of one Lottie Moon. We thank you for the testimony of all those we have talked about this summer. And I pray, Father, we would, as a people, present ourselves that every part of our life would be an altar for an offering. And I pray, Father, we would never seek to be released from the tension of living in this world. But, Father, we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And I pray, Father, that we would be the kind of people who are humble, ready, Father, to be able to think, to discern, your will for our lives in our day and our time. And we thank you, Father, for this encouragement. We thank you, Father, for this command. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.